Until I see what I say. The Green Notebook, carried by military leaders around the world. Within those pages are sweat, tears, triumphs, and the hard-won lessons of life. Lessons worth sharing. Each week, the team dives into the notebooks of military leaders, business professionals, authors, athletes and coaches, and entertainers to share lessons and help you lead with the best version of yourself. Today's episode is sponsored by Emblem Athletic. The best option out there for keeping your unit looking amazing with custom shirts, hoodies, and other gear. They're a veteran-owned business that specializes in making it easy for you. And if you've ever ordered unit gear, you know how difficult it can be. Emblem knows you have better things to do than design gear, collect money, and worst of all, sort through a bunch of shirts. Emblem takes care of everything, including, get this, free shipping worldwide. When it comes to something like a deployment shirt, you know you're going to have this for the rest of your life. So trust Emblem to deliver the best, guaranteed. Visit www.emblemathletic.com to get started with a free online store today. Welcome to another episode of From the Green Notebook. I'm your host, Joe Byerly, and this week we're diving into the notebook of two-time Super Bowl champion Lawrence Tynes. As a former NFL place kicker, Tynes has a unique perspective on the requirement to perform in pressure situations. Think about it. If you're a football fan, how many games have you watched where it came down to a single kick to determine the winner? And Lawrence is the only kicker in NFL history to kick the game-winning kick in overtime in two playoff games, taking his team to the Super Bowl. In this episode, we talk about preparation, focus, and the mental aspects of the game that are easily translatable to leadership and that a lot of folks struggle with. And finally, Lawrence transitioned out of the NFL a few years ago, so we talk about a topic that a lot of military leaders have to deal with at one point or another, and that's letting go of your identity. And he talks about some of the tips and the mindset that he adopted in order to do that. I really enjoyed our conversation, and I hope you have your notebooks open because he's going to pass on a lot of valuable wisdom for leaders at any stage of their career. So please welcome to the show, Lawrence Tynes. Hey, Joe. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to this discussion today. If we could start out, just a little bit of your background, because you were a military kid, right? I was, yeah. I was born and raised in a little town called Campbelltown, Scotland. My father was a Master Chief Corpsman in the Navy. So what was really cool about that whole experience growing up was, you know, we got to hang out with a lot of SEALs. Naval Special Warfare Unit 2 was stationed in Campbelltown. So my dad got to do some really cool things, obviously, with the SEAL team and be their corpsman, if you will, their medic. And so it, it was a tiny little town, 4,000 people. I have two older brothers. And then we moved, of all things, right? You, you go from Scotland, and then your dad says in 1990, hey, we're moving to Florida. It was like oh, man. the coolest thing in the world, right? Because you know yeah. you don't know what you don't know. But I knew Florida had sun and beaches. And so going from Scotland, where it you know, rains 150, 200 days a year, to Florida was kind of cool. And then you know we ended up settling in Milton, Florida, where... If you obviously have military listeners, everyone knows about Whiting Field and where they train pilots and NAS Pensacola. So it was cool. You know, it was uh, we didn't move around a ton, had maybe a couple moves, but then we settled in there. And then, 
you know, my father retired, you know, after doing 22 years and, and went right to the sheriff's department. And then as far as your journey from your childhood to eventually making an NFL, what did that look like? Ooh, it's a long story. I don't know if we have enough time on the pod to tell it, but just the cliff notes of it are, I was a pretty talented soccer player, obviously growing up in Scotland, that's all we played. And I had two older brothers, which, you know, they kicked my ass all the time. So I learned to be tough. I was never really a big kid, but I really took to soccer because I was really competitive. My middle brother was probably our best player in the family in terms of soccer, but that's really what got me into football, which I'll transition to. You know, when you moved to Florida in 1990, like soccer is not a big thing. It just wasn't. Like I played and I played on a really cool travel team and it was a lot of fun. But, you know, when you go to Friday night football games and you see 12 to 15,000 people in the stands, I was like, man, this is awesome. Like, look at all these people. And so, you know, I was a small kid. I was five foot three, 90 pounds in ninth grade. And so I went out for football. I ended up kicking my freshman year. And then I was like the backup quarterback, but I was just too small to really do anything. And then I actually quit football for two years after that. I just was like, I'm not big enough. I can't play this sport. So I focused on soccer. And then finally, Coach Mike McMillian, my PE teacher, convinced me to, to come out again, my junior year going into my senior year. He said, Lawrence, why don't you give us a try again? And I had go, by this time now, I'm six foot one, 150 pounds. So I had grown a foot almost. So I felt like physically I could do it. So I ended up playing safety and I kicked. And then uh, I walked on. So I was talented enough to, you know, to get scouted a little bit, but I didn't get any scholarship offers. So I walked on at Troy University, played there. And then obviously I started the, you know, pro football carousel, if you will, of trying to make it as a kicker. Obviously you finally did. You tried out for the Chiefs in 2001, right? Yep. So I got picked up priority free agent. Again, I'm, I'm basically a walk-on. They had given me a pretty good signing bonus for an undrafted guy. So I knew they were serious. I had about four teams that wanted to sign me after the draft, but I had a really good relationship with um, Frank Gans Jr. And so I thought I had a chance to, I, you really, when you sign as an undrafted free agent, you know, it's actually better than being drafted in the late rounds of the draft because, you know, you don't have a choice when you're drafted late. So I had about four teams and I obviously picked the one where, in my opinion, where I could beat this guy out, the previous kicker. It was Todd Peterson who played a long time and he was a good kicker. He was just a little bit older and, you know, smaller guy, didn't have a big, big leg, but I felt like I could beat him out. I didn't, um, you know, I was very humbled, you know, showing up to an NFL facility. It's interesting because, you know, you grow up watching football on Sunday and then all of a sudden it's pretty intimidating. I'm in the locker room with Trent Green, Priest Holmes, Tony Gonzalez, Willie Rofe, Will Shields, all these Hall of Fame football players. And here's this little guy from Troy that grew up in a town in Milton, Florida, of 10,000 people, and then a town of 4,000 people before that. So it was definitely intimidating. When they told you, hey, we're offering you a contract, like, did you go out and buy just a bunch of Kansas City Chiefs stuff that day and just tell everybody like, hey, I made it? Or did all of a sudden your mind shift switch a little bit to like, oh man, like I made it now. I've got to really put in the work to earn that spot on the team. That is a really good question. You know, when you're 22 years old and finishing up college football, I mean, 
if you know anything about me or people that know me, like I didn't lack for athletic swag or confidence. Like I was talented, but I think what got me to where I was in, in my career was I just outworked people. And then I have this uncanny confidence in my abilities, even if it's probably not true. <laughs> you know, I just never thought people were better than me. And obviously I was very, very humbled. I got kicked in the, you know what, my first year, cause I went to camp and I kicked well. I just, I struggled a little bit with obviously playing in a huge 80,000 seat stadium and then, you know, never feeling fully comfortable around all these pro athletes. I was humbled very quickly. And I'll tell you what, that's the first time in my, really in my athletic career that, and for most guys in the NFL, that they've ever been told no. And so that hurts. Like that stung me and it takes some of your confidence away. But, you know, lo and behold, what worked out for me was I was young. Right. And and we talked about this last week when we spoke on the phone is, you know, there's only 32 kickers in the world. And so as soon as I came to grips with that, I'm like, there's 32 people in the world that do this for a living. And I was actually one of like 50 guys that year that had a chance to compete for one of those spots. And so I kind of went home and just went back to work. Like I knew what I needed to work on. And it wasn't the physical part. Like I can kick a ball just as good as anyone. It was more my mental. So I just had to change the way I, you know, prepared myself mentally. And so that's really what I worked on. Like putting myself in, you know, if you can picture this, when I went and kicked, I was putting myself in positions of like fake crowds and like just in my head, like, you know, your mind is so powerful. So when I would go kick, I was like, I would do my warmups, but then, you know, for about 20 minutes, I would set a ball up on the field and come from the sideline and kind of act like, Hey, I'm in a game right now. And, you know, go out there, go through your routine. You get one shot at this. And so I think just the way I prepared helped me. And so, you know, the chiefs re-signed me to a futures contract in January. So what that means is they just, they're signing you after that year I got cut, they signed me again. So that gave me confidence that like, they liked what they saw. He just wasn't quite ready. At what point did you finally, because 2001, you get signed, but you're just on like the practice squad. Yeah. Right? I mean, you're not yeah. there yet. So when was that? In 2002, they sent me to NFL Europe, which no longer exists, but that was a great opportunity for me. A, I got to go back to Scotland and see all my family and play in Glasgow and play meaningful pro football games with film and, you know, people seeing you play and making kicks in a pro league, which I had never done. So I got cut again the next year. Then I go to the CFL, but I got picked up immediately right after getting cut from camp that year. So I go up to the CFL and it really feels good to be wanted. Like, you know, I don't care if it was the CFL, whatever the hell league it was to be wanted gives you confidence. So like when I went up there, I just excelled. Like I was the guy I had two seasons. I played half the year that first year. And then I re-signed for a full season thinking I'm going to parlay this into a big deal from the NFL. Cause I know they're keeping an eye on me. My first full season there after I played the half season, I made every all pro team you can make in Canada. So I knew I had done the work to get signed. So I had seven offers coming out of the CFL for big money, like big money for me at the time. And I knew, okay, I've set myself up for an opportunity here. And so I, I could, it's like the old girlfriend I couldn't get away from. I go back to the Chiefs. I had seven suitors, but here I am thinking, I'm going to go back to Kansas City. And the reason I did that <laughs> is because they signed me out of college. 
They sent me to NFL Europe. They were loyal to me. So I knew they saw the improvements I had made. And, you know, I didn't have to start over again with some new franchise. That's why I picked the Chiefs. It was the same staff. Coach Vermeil was there. Same everyone, the holder, the punters, some of the players I knew. So I was way more comfortable going back into that locker room, which is important when you're a kicker. You just want to feel comfortable. You know, ultimately, I, I beat out arguably one of the top one or two kickers of all time, Morton Anderson. And then the journey started. So for someone like me who, you know, my experience with the field on the NFL is watching a game on Sundays or as a kid, I saw Ace Ventura <laughs> yeah, and uh, how they dived into the mental game of a kicker, a place kicker. But, but what is it like to be a place kicker in the National Football League? Well, I used to tell the guys all the time, listen, we get razzed a little bit because we're kickers. You know, we're not the 80s, 90s, small little European guys. I mean, I'm 6'2", 200 pounds. I'm not a small guy. I'm bigger than a lot of DBs. But I used to always say everybody wants to be a kicker except on Sunday. And that's the truth. I mean, you make a game winner at the end of the game and you get this all pro safety coming up to, you know, Antrell Roll, one of my favorite teammates of all time. I, I made a kick in the 2011 NFC Championship. And, uh, you know, we were celebrating. And after it's all settled down, we're getting on the bus and Antrell Roll looks over to you and he goes, Lawrence, how in the hell do you do that? Like, how do you handle all? And it's just a respectful question, you know, because obviously we don't do the physical part of the game. But you better believe that everyone on your team respects the hell out of the kicker because they understand they get 60 to 70 opportunities every game to go do well. And sure, they fail sometimes and they have some success. But, you know, for a kicker, we don't know when you go out there on Sunday, the only thing I'm guaranteed to do is one kickoff. That's the only thing I know that I'm going to get to do. So you prepare during the week mentally and the kicking game is all mental. I mean, I, I've competed against guys in camps that had better legs than me, stronger than me, but, you know, they get into these situations in a preseason game and they just cannot perform under the lights. So the mental aspect is, is to me, it's 90% of kicking. And what you just said is, I mean, that, that was the reason why I got so excited when I found out I was going to get the opportunity to speak with you because, you know, in military leadership, like we never know when it's going to be our time to, right. you know, like the nation needs you to step forward and to yep. lead an organization, you know, overseas during a combat deployment or some other situation. And so you just have to do it when your time comes. And it really is. I mean, it is a mental leadership is a mental game. And so to be able to talk to somebody who like, yeah, like you're, you're right. I mean, you might only have two or three opportunities in a game. And like, if you miss the kick, Nobody else is talking about <laughs> what the other players did in that game. They're talking right. about your missed kick. Yeah. And that's just, you know, the mental part I talk about with being a kicker is you just have to be mentally tough. It, it sounds generic and cliche, but the guys that last the longest in the NFL are not necessarily always the most talented guys. It's just the guys that are most mentally tough, just like our men and women that are our soldiers and protect this country. What do you guys do? That's why there's such a correlation to me in some regards is why there's such a mutual respect for athletes and then soldiers is we're obviously two different end results. Obviously, the worst case scenario could happen. But the reality of it is the mutual respect we all have for each other is because we are put in pressure situations. And I actually that's the part that motivates you to be great is 
I didn't want to fail. And that's, it's kind of a double-edged sword. I also didn't care if I failed. Like, I think that was a good mentality to have as a kicker because obviously you miss kicks sometimes. I always said the NFL for kicking, it's not how many do you make in a row. It's what do you do after you miss? And that's really, because some guys are so good. They make, 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 and then they have a miss. And then there's like a chink in the armor and they can't shake it. Because, I mean, I'll tell you, like in training camp, like in team drills, live team drills, if I kicked, you know, let's call it 100 field goals with the team, so like six a day for 30 days, I mean, I wouldn't miss more than four or five of those. Like, so you're talking about a 98, 97% success rate. That's not necessarily the case when you're in season. So handling misses is a big reason of why guys stick around as well, because they're mentally tough to handle the adversity. So speaking of the mental game, I mean, you know, you've talked about focus and you've talked about kind of shirking off those, those misses when they happen and getting right back out there and doing it again. So what are like the things that you did to improve or to hone your focus? And then is any of that things that I can do besides just going out on a empty high school field on a, on a Sunday and pretend like I'm kicking in front of, you know, 30,000 people. You know, I played for some great coaches. I played for Dick Vermeil, Herm Edwards, and Tom Coughlin. And one of the quotes that stuck with me, you know, playing for coach Coughlin was humble enough to prepare confident enough to perform. And for some reason that has stuck with me my whole life. Are you humble enough to prepare and are you confident enough to perform? And so for me, that says a lot of things to me. Am I going to do the little things that it takes to be great? And I coach youth sports. I have 13 year old twin boys. I coach soccer. I coach baseball. I've coached every kid around here. And I tell them, you know, I get a lot of questions from parents, you know, how psycho kids sports are these days, obviously being a parent of kids. And I said, look, like, don't push, don't pressure, but college athletes and pro athletes do the little things very, very well. And then you say that to them and they go, what do you mean? Well, they take care of their bodies. They stretch, they lift, they go to bed on time. They just do all the little things very, very well. Baseball players, what do they do well? They play catch. Like that sounds so juvenile, but that's why baseball players are great. They play catch. They throw the ball to the guy they're supposed to throw it to accurately and consistently. And it sounds, you know, kind of juvenile to say that, but that's really what a pro athlete is, is he is humble enough to prepare and confident enough to perform by doing all the little tiny things that it takes to be great. And a lot of people won't do that. That's just human nature. And that's one of the things that I've learned just, you know, from this conversation we're having now, but all the other people I've spoken with through this podcast, you know, WWE wrestler, Diamond Dallas Page, he used to set up video cameras around the ring to be able to watch himself, like kind of watch the game film on Mondays, but to also watch the crowd so he could understand how his moves and how his like reactions in the ring were affecting the audience. And Michael McClellan, who wrote like a 1000 page epic novel, he's a lawyer, but he was waking up every single morning at 5 a.m. and writing 500 words a day. And he did this for almost a decade before he finally had his first novel finished. But it's all these people, including yourself, that are doing the small things that equate to big things in the end, you know? 
Well, as you know, having in this digital world, everything wants immediate success. Parents do, the kids do. Nobody has patience. You know, I, I was a much better player at 34 than I was at 26 because of the, all the little work and details that I put in in my craft of how am I going to practice? How am I going to take care of my body? And as you play and become a better pro, you learn new things every year because, you know, coaches always say it, you're either getting better or you're getting worse. You never stay the same. And that's true because you never stay the same. Are you getting better or are you getting worse? And so pro football players, you know, obviously father time is undefeated and naturally physical ailments catch up to you. And that's really what gets people out of the league. But I mean, you just have to do the monotonous things. You know, I think that's the differentiator between even a college athlete. Talent will get you to college. It will. But when you get to the NFL, I always said getting to the NFL was hard, but it was easier than staying. Because once you're on the payroll and they're paying you, you know, very, very handsome and lucrative contracts and salaries, the magnifying lens gets greater and greater every year. Is this a guy we're going to continue investing in and putting money in and someone that we think can we can keep building around? So I always thought staying was harder because like I mentioned, there's 32 people in the world that get to do it. And there's probably, you know, legitimately 40 guys out there that could potentially take your job. And so that's why kicking, I loved it because I knew I was always two bad games away, two or three bad games away in a row from being cut. You know, if that doesn't motivate you, then I don't know what will. I'm biased in some regards, but I think it's one of, if not the most difficult position in pro sports. Today's episode is also sponsored by veteran-owned Alpha Coffee Company. Their premium 100% Arabica coffee is freshly roasted for a bold, delicious flavor. Alpha Coffee supports veteran charities and has donated over 19,000 bags of coffee to deployed troops. They also offer a combinable 10% military discount and 10% off for subscriptions. Taste the Alpha difference. Purchase their coffee today from their online store or via Amazon Prime. Well, you mentioned being one of 32 and every season, only two teams make it to the Super Bowl. So I'd like to talk a little bit about the 2007 NFC Championship game, because in my opinion, that's one of the greatest playoff games in the history of the NFL. So for those who aren't familiar with it, could you talk a little bit about the atmosphere going into that game? Everything from like the weather to where you guys were. I mean, you guys were playing Green Bay Packers, so you were definitely the underdogs in that game. We were, you know, we had had kind of an up and down crazy season. We started out 0-2 and got a really big stop from Kavika Mitchell on like fourth and goal against Washington to give us our first win. So 0-3 is a death wish. Like you're probably not making the playoffs, but 1-2, we had some new coordinators, some new faces, and then we just got on a run. We ended up, you know, getting into the playoffs late. I believe we were a wild card team. So we were a, a six seed. And so we went on a run, beat Tampa. We beat Dallas, who had beaten us twice that year because we played them in the division. And so this Green Bay game was epic. They had beaten us early in the year, week two, and it was Brett Favre. I mean, it was Lambeau Field. It was minus 28 wind chill, third or fourth coldest game in NFL history. And 
I mean, you can't talk about what better place to play a game in the NFL world than Lambeau Field in you know January. It was freezing. I mean, I've never been so damn cold in my life, but it was just a great opportunity. And then obviously the game plays out like it does. I go out there and I'll tell you a quick story before I get into the game. Usually I kick 10 balls on each side of the field to warm up. So Jeff Fiegels was our punter, legendary potential Hall of Fame punter, played 22 years. So Jeff's in like his 20th, 21st, yeah, 20, 21st season at the time. And we go out there and after five warm-up kicks, he can't catch the ball. He can't catch it. It's so cold that his hands don't work. So we just stopped the pregame routine. And I just said, Jeff, it's going to be what it's going to be. I mean, this they got to play in it. We got to play in it. We'll figure it out. So we get into the game, first drive, boom, go down, kick a field goal. Second drive, boom, go down and kick a field goal. And I'm telling you, any kick that day was a chore. Just because the snap, the hold, everything had to be perfect. So fast forward to the fourth quarter. It's a tight game. I have a 43-yarder with about seven or eight minutes left. And that's a pretty long kick in those conditions. And I miss it left. So it would have put us up. I believe we were tied maybe at the time. So I miss it left. I come to the sideline. Coach Coughlin's like yelling at me. It's fine. Not a big deal. But I actually, you know, I hit the ball really well. So for me, I was always a glass half full guy. I may miss kick sometimes, but sometimes you hit really good balls and you miss. It's just a fact of life. So he's yelling at me, blah, blah, blah. So then the game's getting really tight. We go down again, and I've got, in football terms, a kick I should make 99% of the time, a 36-yard field goal. I'm like, I'm going to go out here and win the game. This is it. We're going to go to the Super Bowl. We it's, go out there. It's four seconds left. Yeah, like, four, for the okay. listeners. Right. It, this I, is huge, right? Okay. This is the very end, right? I'm sitting on the sidelines right now, Lawrence, and my I'm like holding my breath because this is your chance to win the game. Yeah, so – I go out there and I just have, I would mark it down as the worst field goal attempt of my life. I absolutely dog shank it to the left. Like we get a high snap, which I'm not into making a ton of excuses, but what that does is when it's high and I leave when the snap comes, I have to buy time. And the only way I can buy time getting to the ball, cause you have to get the ball off in like 1.2 seconds or it's going to get blocked. So I start leaning left, which is a no-no, but I think, okay, I can still shove it in there. And I just absolutely shank it way left. So I'm like, oh man, this is not good. You know, I, I come back, Coughlin's pissed off. I get it. But, you know, the last half full side of me said, you know what? We didn't lose. We get to go to overtime. So then we go to overtime and we lose the toss. And I'm like, oh no. Brett Favre gets the ball in overtime. But anyway, I was still optimistic. I just never really got down on myself ever with misses. I think I only had two or three games in my entire career where I missed more than one field goal in a game. So I usually bounce back. Well, anyway, Corey Webster on the first series makes a pick. He picks off Brett Favre. We get the ball on their side of the field in overtime. So I'm like, yeah, here we go. And so two or three plays later, third down, ball's incomplete, boom, I bolt onto the field. And the legend has grown, obviously, since I've retired, but I made a personal decision that I was not going to let Coach Coughlin decide this. I was not going to let anyone else on the team decide it except me. And 
I ran out there it was a 47 yard field goal. So I get out there and I kind of look around and there's really the Eagles is not out there. My holder, some of the guys that are on that unit were not out there. And all of a sudden I see coach Coughlin look at me and he shoes the field goal team on the field. And really where that came from was just kind of what I talked about earlier. Like I just had so much confidence really from the miss in the fourth quarter that, you know, kicking a ball 47 yards and minus 28, it's still the longest field goal in Lambeau field in playoff history. I knew I could get it there. Like that 43 yarder I missed. Yeah. But I hit it pretty well. I knew I could get it there from about 48, 50 yards. So that's why I went out there with that much confidence. And then, you know, we lined up and we made the kick and, and everything was great. The snap was good. You know, it's pandemonium. You're going to the Super Bowl. So what was going through your mind? I mean, you went from, I'm going to own this. However, it turns out nobody yeah. else. I'm not going to blame it on the pressure. I'm not going to blame it on the snap. Like I'm going to kick this field goal and I'm going to win this game. So what was that like when you saw the ball sail through the uprights and you just realized like you're going to the Super Bowl? It was a pretty amazing feeling, you know, just I think like I talked about earlier, I knew with my preparation and just my inner confidence as an athlete that that moment was not too big for me. Like I knew, you know, I needed to go out there and really make amends for missing two kicks. I mean, these guys are out there busting their tails the whole game and I didn't want to be the reason why we lost. Ultimately, I would have been had we have lost that football game. But like I said, I'm not afraid to fail. And I think that's important because like, you got to put yourself out there. And if you want to, you know, be remembered in sports history, you got to perform in high pressure moments. And, you know, I ran to the locker room. There's a pretty cool video. I like, and it really was nothing other than excitement. And I wanted to get to hell off of that field. Like, I can't tell you what minus 28 feels like for anyone that's ever been in it, but to sit out there for almost four hours, and play a football game. And sure, we have heated benches and things like that. But so I run it. And in Green Bay, from the field and the tunnel up to the locker room, it's a pretty long haul. So I run to the locker room, like straight hands trying to catch me and he can't catch me because I'm faster than him. And so I get in the tunnel, I shimmy my way up these stairs, a couple of different stairs. And then there's a long corridor hallway. And I sit down in my locker and I'm in the locker room and there's not a single person from the organization in there. Like that's when it truly hit me. Cause I was like, you know, what the hell just happened? We're going to the Super Bowl, And then obviously the guys start piling in the coaches, the owners, and you celebrate and it's a lot of fun. So that's definitely the coolest moment. And then obviously I was fortunate enough to be in that position again, four years later and convert it again. So I was just lucky to be put in those spots and really fortunate to play with a bunch of great guys and great teams. I'm interested too, because you guys went on to win the Super Bowl that year against the Patriots. And then you have to start over, you know, several months later in the preseason. And it's like that Super Bowl win doesn't matter anymore. Like the celebration's over. Now it's time to get back to work. So what was that experience like? I mean, what was the locker room like? Could you talk about that a little bit? You know, human nature is to kind of be complacent and that's not I mean, that, that happens to pro athletes too. And when you play that long, you're talking about into February and then you've got all your, you know, media and celebratory responsibilities into like the middle of February. And then you really just go home and you're so exhausted and you just relax. But then the off season program starts back up, you know, April. 
And it's interesting because there's so much movement in pro football with free agency and players getting cut, coaching staff changes and things like that. So the Super Bowl hangover is real. Like you hear, you know, announcers talk about it with teams. It happens because I think A, guys are tired, but then each year brings a whole different team. Every year, the team is different in some way, shape or form. And one or two guys can completely change the culture for the better or the worse on your football team. And I know that sounds crazy, but there's 53 guys on the team. It's not a lot of guys and only 46 of you dress out on game day. So it's, you know, people go to NFL games, you look down the sideline, it looks like there's more coaches sometimes than players. So you really just have to rely on your leadership and your coaching staff, which anyone that knows anything about Tom Coughlin, that is his number one quality is he is a ultimate leader of men. Like he is one of the finest people I've ever met and his message is consistent and he is just the ultimate leader. And so you really put your trust in your staff and your management team to put the right guys in the locker room. Just like with you guys, you want to put the right guys around you guys when you're on the battlefield. So it's the same thing, but no two teams are the same. And with that, you mentioned, you know, like one or two guys could change the entire culture of the team. And we talked a little bit about this before when we talked last week, but I'm interested in hearing it again. What's your take on culture versus talent? Like, especially like in the NFL. It's the only thing that matters. It's the only thing that matters. That's at any level of sport is culture. That's what teams are striving to build. There's so many egos in the NFL locker room that it's hard. You know, it's hard to create culture when you've got guys that make 10 to 20 to 30 to $40 million a year. And you've got also got guys on your team that make $500,000 a year. You know, there's egos involved in pro sports and that's fine. As long as you check your ego at the door, which was a mantra of Tom Coughlin's, but culture is everything. You know, I try to create it on these youth teams that I coach because I think, you know, if you go back to when, you know, a lot of people played high school sports and you have the fondest memories of playing with all your buddies that you grew up in because there's a relationship there, you know, where, you know, their family, you know, their moms and dads or brothers and sisters creating that in the NFL is difficult because everyone's adults and everyone has their own, you know, once they leave the building, but those two Super Bowl teams I was on, you know, it's like if I called Michael Strahan today and I needed something like he would do it. The quality of people that were on those teams. And listen, I played on teams with quality people, pretty much my whole career for the most part, but it doesn't mean you're guaranteed to win a championship, but it gives you a really good chance to win. And then obviously talent comes second. You got to have talented players, but culture is everything. Yeah. I think it's fascinating too, because, you know, I, I know like from the military side, like the same thing, like we can have the most talented people in our unit, but if we're not gelling together, if we're not working together, like the unit's not going anywhere. And I think I pulled this from SEC head coach right now of the Missouri Tigers, Coach Strinkwitz. Yep. And he would tell his team that like a spear has three points on it. And if the spear is not moving in the same direction, then it doesn't matter how sharp any of those points are. It's not going to make its intended impact. So I really appreciate your comments on culture. Moving a little bit on, I mean, you got to win two Super Bowls with the Giants, but then after that, it's time to walk away from the NFL. So I'd like to spend a couple minutes in this final part of the interview talking about 
making that transition from the NFL to like what we in the military call like to civilian life. Like, yeah. did you struggle and do NFL players at large struggle with that? NFL players at large do struggle with the transition from the fame. And I never let football define me. Like I said, I was a walk-on in college. I was an undrafted free agent. I had to battle every year to keep my job. I always knew it was going to come to an end. And so really while you're playing, you know, you learn from veteran players, you know, in Kansas City, where I first started, or in New York, where there's a ton of opportunities, especially when you win Super Bowls. But as I got into my mid thirties, you, you realize, you know, this thing's going to come to an end and, and, and what are you going to do? But a lot of guys struggle because I think they identify only, they only think they're a football player. As I became the older player talking to younger players, and I still do it now, you know, I, I talked to the entire rookie class, the Giants rookie class this past year and shared with them probably the same things I'm going to tell you is, you know, you have to make relationships while you're playing and then always plan to be done like right now because one injury away or something crazy happens. I mean, you're on the streets and then, you know, sometimes for most guys, average career is less than four seasons. So what are you 27, 28 years old? I didn't really struggle with it. I mean, I miss football. I miss the locker room. I don't miss Monday through Saturday. I miss Sundays in the locker room. I know I, when I played, I enjoyed the preparation, but like, I don't miss lifting a ton of weight and putting all that effort and work in. But I was fortunate enough to talk to a lot of veteran players, learn a lot of things while I was playing. And then I jumped right into where I'm currently at at Wheels Up right now, uh, six months after I got done. And so that was really just through relationships of people I met while I played and people giving you opportunities because you are a pro football player. Let's be honest. I mean, people want to put pro athletes in their workforce and say, Hey, this guy works for me. And so I took full advantage of that. And, you know, now I have a different locker room. I work at an awesome company with great people and that's a little bit different model, but it never changes, right? Everything's competitive in this world. And that's no different than where I am now. There's just not really a scoreboard that everyone gets to watch, but I'm in a competitive private aviation world that is competitive. Let's talk about that. I mean, what were some of the major lessons you learned from your time in the NFL that, that you've taken with you to wheels up where you're currently employed? And like, how, how has that influenced you as a leader in that role? I just think being competitive and being counted on and being paid a salary at this company I'm at to perform. I mean, I'm not just paid to sit here and be okay or be average. That's not in my DNA. I don't want to be average. I don't want to work for average people. I don't want to be an average company. And so I'm surrounded by winners. Like we have some of the greatest, smartest, brilliant business people in private aviation working for us. And that motivates me. And then a lot of my colleagues are some of the best in the world at what they do. So that's what I love. So really just the competitive nature of sports. And it's why all kids should at some level play something or compete at something, swimming, tennis, whatever it is. I do like the team sports better because I think ultimately at some point in your life, you're going to have to rely on teammates and be accountable to your teammates. So I think that's really what helps. I mean, being in a locker room where Michael Strahan is depending on me to make kicks, that creates a culture and a mindset moving forward in life to where you have to be accountable, just like I'm accountable now to my employees and my senior management team. 
Well, thank you so much for your time today, Lawrence. If our listeners like want to learn more about you, want to interact with you, where can they find you? Yes, you know, I'm pretty active on social media at LT4Kicks on Twitter and at LT4Kicks on Instagram. The Instagram is more my family platform. And then Twitter, you just never know what the hell I'm going to say on there. But I love talking about football. I love reading really cool motivational stories on Twitter about people and how they made it and how they became great. So Twitter's fun. I know some people hate it, but I enjoy it because I can kind of put in buzzwords that I don't want to read about or, you know, all that negativity on there. But man, there's a lot of good fun stuff on Twitter if you form the right people around you. I enjoy it. So LT4Kicks is my Twitter handle and the same on Instagram. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time today, Lawrence. Hey, this is an awesome interview and I'll make sure to put that in the show notes as well as there's a great like video. It's about five, seven minute video that talks about the 2007 NFC championships. You just kind of get a, a great feel for what that was like. So if any of our listeners are, are curious about that, they can watch that video. No, yeah. I appreciate you doing that. It is. It's funny because even when I watch it now, I still get a little, I never got nervous when I played, maybe some butterflies, but man, when I watch that now, 15 years removed from it. Holy cow. I get so nervous, even though I know I made the kick, but that's what keeps you going those nerves. So. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, it's been a great, great opportunity, Lawrence, and I really appreciate it. I learned a lot on this episode, this whole thing with solid gold. I appreciate it. Thanks, Joe. Thanks for having me. Thank you again to all our listeners for joining us on another episode of From the Green Notebook. Check us out at fromthegreennotebook.com, where you can download past episodes, read some of our previous blog posts, and sign up for our monthly reading list and Sunday email. If you enjoy the podcast so far, please subscribe and give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. And follow us on Twitter at FTG Notebook, as well as Instagram and Facebook. You can find us by just searching From the Green Notebook. So this is Jacob Goronsky signing off. And hope you tune in to our next episode. I came from the mud. There's dirt on my hands. Strong like a tree. There's roots where I stand. Oh, I've been running from the law. Hope they won't shoot me down soon.